The song never fails to ease my mind out here in the West, where the distances are great and the scenery monotonous. Additionally, my pleasing baritone seems to inspirit old Dan here and keep me in good heart during the day's measure of hoof clops. Ain't that right, Dan? <laughs> Maybe some of y'all have heard of me. Buster Scruggs, known to some as the San Saba Songbird. Drop it! Duncan and both come correct. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to a very special episode of Duncan and Bo Come Correct, uh, which we haven't discussed the title for. Duncan and Bo go to uh, maybe Buster Scruggs? <laughs> San Sabra, how about that? Duncan and Bo go to San Sabra. Um, I was kind of thinking we could just go with uh, Duncan and Bo love Tom Waits. No shit, sir. I am down with that. Um, uh, as you hear there, ladies and gentlemen, that's my lovely colleague, uh, Duncan McLeish. Yeah, it sounded a bit hollow tonight because I am uh, I'm on the Wi-Fi and using um, not the standard setup uh, because I've been out watching films and coming very late and my household would not appreciate me moving my recording rig downstairs. Um, so, Nobody yeah. wants your excuses. <laughs> um, so, yeah, if I'm not my usual... Uh, silky smooth um i apologize but trust me we are gonna have fun with this one holy shit you guys okay so this isn't a regular episode of the show because we're not doing a series and blah 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 but if you want to put uh duncan and i on on notice on fleek as the kids say i don't know (laughs) i don't know know. sounds good yeah i'm going with it um (laughs) Then what you do is you you drop a Coen Brothers movie on Netflix, mm-hmm. and we're especially an anthology of Western short films, uh, films based in the American Old West. A I love a Western, Duncan. And, I've heard this. Uh, you know, and the Coen Brothers did True Grit, which is amazing. There are certainly elements of the Western in No Country for Old Men. Oh uh, yeah, for sure. And so. I knew they had it in them, but I was glad to see with the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which of course now available on Netflix, um, they just go full Western and in a, in a way that it, all right. So it is a collection of six stories. The the way that we're going to talk about this is we're just going to go story by story. That's Uh, a smart move, Bo. This is a smart move. Thank you, sir. I appreciate uh, the support. Um, we are going to spoil the shit out of this. If you haven't seen the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, I don't think I'm going to, um, necessarily spoil our, uh, opinion of the film by saying we feel like you should see it, uh, if you haven't. And, and it's best not to know in, uh, in some of these stories. So, um, that said, we're going to uh, plow forward and start talking about, uh, the film, uh, and, and in spoilerific fashion. So, um, I'm excited though, because I watch this, uh, like I have a special room for certain movies, Duncan. <laughs> what do you, <laughs> does it have, does it happen to have plastic sheeting on the floor? It does. It's where I do my, <laughs> my, my, my mafia style hits as well as watch my, my movies. Um, <laughs> Like, oh, you motherfucker, you get in here and you watch this movie, or else your bridge going to end up all over the floor like a drop plate to Baba Gadoosh. Um, that, was, that was really good. That was really, really, really good. It's better than your Scottish. Um, it, so. it can't help but be. 
Uh, yeah. so, uh, unless that unless that was your Scottish name, that was terrible. <laughs> that was ironically that was my uh, Latvian. Very good, very yeah, good. Yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> the movie is framed as if we are reading a book entitled "The Ballad of Buster Scruggs." Mm-hmm. Uh, the first story is, of course, "The Ballad of Buster Scruggs," <laughs> starring one Tim Blake Nelson. As the titular Buster Scruggs, who is a Gene Autry style singing cowboy, mm-hmm. we are introduced to uh, playing guitar on horseback and and singing his ever loving heart out uh, as he as he peels off a version of Cool Water, mm-hmm. and um, it seems like a cartoonish opening to the proceedings. Oh, that's very cartoonish. I mean, it uh, on some level kind of reminded me of kind of early nineties um, Coen Brothers. I was kind of thinking Big Lebowski era kind of cartoon keepers, if you know what I mean. Um, and the way it was all set up, I was like, right, not quite sure if we're going full comedy here or not. And yeah, even even the setting is it's like a a, a very very colourful opening, if you know what I mean. Things yes. become a, a, a bit drabber as time goes on in this, but it's a very colourful, bright opening, very happy song, a very smiley guy who's wearing all in white, so it's bright and it's in your face. Um, and it's not what I would usually class as my understanding or my knowledge of kind of Western-style cinema, if you know what I mean, like Western movies. I, I, I haven't watched many that are on the kind of calamity Jane level of bright and in your face. Um, but this one, this one gets, this one gets bloody. Well, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Like this lulls you into a false sense because it, it does have that kind of big Lebowski. I would even say raising Arizona kind of mm-hmm. loquacious narrator. who oh, yes. is like, you know, when I'm out here in the desert on the, on the back <laughs> of my horse, pounding out the day's hoof beats, you know, and just, yeah. like it is that kind of Coen brothers dialogue that is just delicious, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a character that is clearly over the top and self-aware and that kind of thing. And there's a great moment where he, he's like, I believe up ahead on this bluff is a place where a man can sit around a table and a deck of cards and, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, goes into this like shitty little tab- bar in the middle of nowhere. And there's a great moment where he just pats his white suit and yeah. <laughs> steps out of a cloud of dust, you know, where it's just like, okay, the dust from the trail is comically like, it truly is a Warner brothers cartoon kind mm-hmm. of uh, dust person left in, uh, in his wake. And he, uh, he's like, I'd like a whiskey. And, uh, <laughs> And the bartender is like, you know, this is a dry county. And he's like, well, what are those boys over there drinking? And he's like, well, they're drinking whiskey, but those are outlaws. And he's like, well, don't let my white suit and pleasant demeanor fool you. I've been known to break a few statutes myself, pal. And... (laughs) (laughs) You're you're, you're moving it. Your impression's moving it. What's that? Oh, wasn't it maybe you know supper on grandma's cough medicine? <laughs> <laughs> What's that from? Like, is that dumb and dumber? I believe you're right. Uh, oh no, but that's where you're going. <laughs> don't worry, this story's not that long. Uh, so he ends up, um, like one of one of the dudes uh, drinking whiskey 
is like, hey, we don't drink with tin horns around here, and you need to get out. And uh, the guy threatens him by asking, does that iron on your side work? Mm-hmm. At which point Buster Scruggs draws and shoots him in less than the blink of an eye. Yeah, drops him like a sack of potatoes, bro. Right, and re- replies, well, I guess it is. And <laughs> and then the, the, the guy's buddies start to stand up, and he just murders every last motherfucker in the place. Yeah, and it's, it's vicious as well. It's not like the, the kind of, oh, you got me, you know, like, right. takes three steps and fall. No, he drops them. Right. He <laughs> just shoots all of them. And as he's walking out, like, the, the most brutal part of this is as he's walking out, he realizes that one of them isn't dead. I think the way he puts it is like, well, I failed to puncture one of his vitals. Yeah. Uh, bad shooting on my part. And... <laughs> So he just opens the door for the dude who's like trying to claw his way out of the bar. He's like, let me get that for you, partner. And uh, he's like, I'll let the wolves and the Gila monsters perform the coup de gras here. And <laughs> just fucks off and leaves this guy to die in the desert alone. It's fucking awful. And so then he goes to a place called like Frenchman's Bluff, I think is the name of the place. Mm-hmm. And he's like, this place is not known to me. And goes to the saloon, looking to play some cards. Gets stopped at the door uh, because uh, it's it's the kind of bar where you have to turn in your guns. Yeah, and he so he he like unbuckles you know his his uh, gun belt, hands it over, and then um, is like, I suppose you'll be one of these senoritas too. Yeah. And he's got these two little guns on his boot. <laughs> oh, it's so good. <laughs> and, <laughs> So he hands those over and then goes and like on the way to the poker table is like, well, I'm not inclined to be without my six shooter, but since it's the local custom Um, and takes a a seat across from Clancy Brown, the curb himself. Fucking right. He's like Ramirez. No, I mean, uh, (coughs) Buster. (laughs) Right. And. Uh, so Buster Scruggs is, uh, has to see at the at the poker table, and um, the a guy has just left this seat, and there's a hand dealt already, and mm-hmm. he kind of looks at, at the cards, and it turns out it's the the famously the dead man's hand, and as we will see when we're talking about uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs, this movie is all about death and dying. Oh yeah, 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 pretty much. Yeah. So. Um, uh, he's like, I don't want to play this hand. And they're like, well, uh, Clancy Brown says you, if you've seen him, you play him. Mm-hmm. And they get into an argument about this and Clancy Brown pulls a gun on him and Buster Scruggs stands up and it's like, Hey man, like, first of all, you are not supposed to have a gun on you that, you know, defies local customs and <laughs> is you know, making a very eloquent defense of uh, his, his position, and Clancy Brown insists, like, no, 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 you're it, you, as soon as you saw those cards, you decided to play that hand, mm-hmm. and is about to shoot Buster Scruggs, who then stomps on the edge of uh, the poker table, which lifts a loose board, <laughs> kicking Clancy Brown's fist back. And up, 
so that he shoots himself in the head. And for good measure, Buster Scruggs does it two more times in quick succession. (laughs) So it's like, bang, bang, bang. And Clancy Brown has shot himself in the head. Everyone in the bar is like, the fuck is going on? And Buster Scruggs entirely diffuses the situation by singing a song about Curly Joe, who he has just killed. Yes. And it's fucking amazing. It's, this is how you open a movie, Bo. I don't know I don't know if you know this is how you open a movie, but this is how you open a movie. It's, it's kind of mind-blowing that it's this easy for the Coen brothers. Yeah, that, well, yeah, we've, we've spoken about how good these guys are, Bo. I mean, it's, I, I, I just don't think there's, I keep saying this, I don't, I genuinely don't think there's there's many filmmakers that just operate at their level. You know, like the, the mix of um, really, really kind of dark subject matter and surreal comedy. They just, it's like, it's almost like a second language. Yeah. It's it, like this whole thing is such a cartoon of a story. As mm. we see, not only in the, in the song that is being sung here, but then Curly Joe's brother comes in. And it's like, you killed my brother. I want to see you outside. So calls him out in the street like a real high noon kind of situation. And uh, Buster Scruggs straps on the iron. And it's like, you know, I should have become an undertaker. Uh, why, why, why profit or why let somebody else profit on my work? You know, that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. so he ends up drawing on the guy. um, out in the middle of the street and just shoots off his trigger finger. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a deck move and I love it. <laughs> and then it's like, well, I shot off his trigger finger. It takes some work, but he does have four others. And then just bang, 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 bang shoots off the rest of his fingers on uh, his right hand. Mm-hmm. And then the guy starts reaching over himself with his left hand to try to get his gun out of the holster, which he still has not managed to do. <laughs> and there's this real Bugs Bunny moment where B- B- Buster Scruggs is like, well, when they made this boy, they forgot to put the quit in him. <laughs> and he goes, huh, I shot five bullets. I just have the one left. And then he like gets a mirror and has the gun over his shoulder shooting via the reflection and it says like well his heart's on the left side because of him being in the mirror and then i've got the gun upside down and well best not to be too fancy and then just (laughs) shoots the guy dead (laughs) in the middle of the street and oh god duncan i loved it so much it was like as i was watching i was just like oh my god cohen brothers you were just all like Again, they make it look so easy to be this silly and absurd. Yep. And and it makes not only makes sense, it's just so fucking charming as well as violent. It maybe it's charming because it's so violent. I, I, I think that's what it is. I think I think it's a skill. It's a skill they have to pull that off. But I think the violence and the narration I think you've hit it on the head here. There is a very bugs bunny quality to the whole thing. You know the the narration of what he's doing while he's doing it, the the wink and the nod and the acknowledgement to the audience of what he's doing, I think just adds the charm that you need. Yeah, yeah, and, and all right, and we'll get to it because the most cartoonish fucking thing 
yeah, it's about time. It, yeah, but it, in this story, has yet to happen, which is so he he says, uh, uh, "Pause for reflection." Uh, after shooting the guy with the mirror shot, um, as he approaches him, and and Buster Scruggs is about to sing another song about this guy that he's just murdered, and pauses because he sees a guy riding over the hill uh, outside of town. And uh, it turns out that this is a, you know, a young gunman who is also making a name for himself, another singing cowboy. uh, Mm -hmm. And um, so the guy calls uh, Buster Scruggs out and it's a repeat of the scene with, Curly Joe's brother, only Curly Joe's brother was an idiot, and this guy's a for real gunman, and he uh, um, asks uh, Buster Scruggs, like, well, do you need a count? He goes, no, I guess I rightly don't. And then there's, in another blink of an eye, a gunshot, and Buster (laughs) Scruggs looks a little surprised, then takes off his hat and looks at the front of it, which has a hole in it, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then inside the hat, where there is blood, where the bullet came out the back of his head, and he says, well, that ain't good. And yeah. then collapses to the ground because he has been shot the fucking head. <laughs> and then it's just like, well, I should have saw that coming, but you can't be top dog forever. And then as the younger cowboy comes over, to kind of kick some dirt onto Buster Scruggs and it starts to sing a song about how like, you know, this is the fate of every cowboy, Mm -hmm. a fucking angel version of Buster Scruggs (laughs) complete with wings and a fucking harp. Yep. Floats up out of him and they sing a duet. Yep. About the, you know, the mournful life of a cowboy and uh, Buster Scruggs says, well, I guess I'm going to the my great reward. I hope I see you there in a place where, you know, there's none of this meanness of the used to be. And mm-hmm. it just fades out after they sing a song and he goes to heaven. And it's the most adorably violent story I've ever seen, I think. Yeah, uh, that, I, I think, see when I was watching it, well, yeah, I watched it yesterday. And um, I was doing uh, like bits and bobs. I had I, I was watching it. Um, I had my wireless headphones, and so I was pluttering away and stuff um, when it was on. And this is so short an opening, like because I thought I'd be able to work around that, you know, concentrate on the telly, but not have to pay my full attention to it because you know it's Colin Brothers. And you don't have to pay your full attention to everything. The dialogue will help you through, even if you miss a scene. Um, as soon as the short finished. I was like, no, 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 no. Relocated back to the living room, reset it right back, and watched it from the start right through. Yeah. Again, I was just like, I have to take this in again. And it finished. And of, I mean, this is up there with some of the, some of my favorite things the Coen brothers have ever done. Like, as a, like a standalone short, it's up there is just, I think it's kind of, even, even though, no, not even though. I just think it's perfect. Yeah. Oh, I've <laughs> I've watched it three story. times already. It's just that one. Just, I mean, I've watched a couple of them a couple of times, but that's the one that's like this is so short and it's yeah. so funny that it's so confident. 
yeah, you know what I mean, it's right. You don't you don't make a, a, a even a short film like this without having done like we were talking about, like raising Arizona and uh, um, you know Big Lebowski and those kinds yeah. of absurdist films, and just know like, oh, here's what we can get away with. But this is what I love about this, and we'll touch on it as well. What I love about um, Buster Scrubs, just in general, as a as a whole entity of small kind of vignette stories, is that to me this feels like not only like it's a Coen Brothers anthology, but it feels like an anthology of their career. You know, what I mean, they're they're hitting the beats of everything in this, like everything from Blood Simple right through to Old Brother Where Art Now, you know, like they, they are covering huge amounts of ground here from the surreal kind of perspective to the downright dark. I mean, there's like two particular things that happen like coming up later on, which to me are just wholly dark, like mm-hmm. different level dark. And that's what I kind of love about this. This is an opening is it's like, Right, hold like even though like the end is that our hero, quote unquote hero, dies and you know is going to heaven and all the rest, and it starts on this really, really high note. The way this ends, you would not predict. It ends on like um it ends on a bit of a dark note, which I kinda love about yeah. it. I, the right. story's like the, the story's kinda change tone very, very, very quickly. Um where they may start off happy, they might end up disturbing and sad and vice versa. But what I love about these is that I don't know if it was always an intention of you can, well, you did, you watch, go back, watch this opening one a couple of times. I don't know if it's an intention that you can jump in or jump out or if they really think you should watch the whole thing in its entirety. But what I love about this as an anthology is depending on my mood, the Cone Brothers have catered for almost every mood I might have in the entirety of this like depending on what mood i'm in there is a shot here for me yeah without sounding um like dimin- diminutive of of the project it does feel like a whitman sampler of cohen brothers yes. of like this story reminds me of this and this story reminds me of this and like you said you know there it's almost like the various moods even though it's all around the central theme of fucking death um yeah. <laughs> Which is also very Coen Brothers. And of course. So the next story, Duncan, is entitled Near Algodonis. Yeah, uh, this can I just say this has one of my favorite characters in a Western and this bank sure killer. Is. It's fucking amazing. Like you, you, actually amazing. You know who it is, right? <laughs> Who's the actor? It's Steven Root. Um, who you would know from Milton uh, in Office Space. Uh, oh fuck! And but is in fucking everything, and he's always great. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's he's brilliant in this. He's brilliant. In this. It's worth saying that the the gunman at the end of the first one was played by James Franco, who plays our role. Well, the the kind of central role in this one, but not the same character that I'm led to believe. Was it James Franco in that? I thought it was somebody else at the end. Of, I thought uh, it was. Ja- I thought it was James Franco. I may be wrong, but we are not going to let this lie. I, this sounds like something it, I can call bullshit on. I don't think it that's right. Like James Franco, uh, the gunman, the kid, yeah, in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs segment is played by Willie Watson. 
Who the fuck is Willie Watts? That's a made-up name. Nope, he As is. James Franco's <laughs> ultimate name. He, uh... Hmm. Willie Watson. Two seconds here. Willie Watson is a singer. Yep. Who does look a little bit like it's nothing like James Franco. But he looks like James Franco. <laughs> Fair enough. Um... <laughs> Good Lord. I thought it was I genuinely thought it was James Franco because I thought he was. I remember seeing the original trailers for this, and Franco featured quite heavily in it. That I thought he was like when the second story happened. I was like, "Oh, right, he's the through note," and then that never happened after that. So, all right. Well, I'm glad we could dispel uh, a childhood fantasy of yours. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad we could see through Duncan's lies. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, listeners, that you had to hear that. First of many in this this recording. So. We call them tall tales out here, Duncan, in the Old West. Um, and the, speaking of tall tales, this is kind of a, certainly a weird allegory of sorts. Um, yes. So James Franco is standing outside a bank, almost uh, as remote as the bar we saw at the beginning of Buster Scruggs. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> he goes into the bank out in the middle of nowhere and is asking the uh, the teller, played by Stephen Root, um, if they have a lot of money there. And he's like, you know, yeah, we kind of do because uh, of uh, prospectors or whatever the fuck. And he uh, he says, have you ever been robbed? And then Stephen Root says yes twice, but never successfully. Yeah. Giving you the impression that this guy may be more than he seems, which uh, brings... Or bullshitting. Or, but like, that's, I think that's that's what I got from it, was that when he says, like, he, he almost the, the way he sets up these two field robberies and his descriptions, it sounds like he's bullshitting. You know, he's like, because they sound so fantastical that this old guy, this old old bank teller, could have done what he says he has done, um, which I almost think leads to the false confidence on Franco's character. Yeah. And it's it's great because as soon as Franco is like, (laughs) hey, uh, go ahead and stoop down there for those larger denominations after he starts, like, robbing the joint, pulls a gun on him and is like, all right, I'm robbing you. You know, give me some money. And all of a sudden... Uh, he's like leaning behind the counter to see where Steven Root has gone and shotgun blasts rip through the base of the teller window. <laughs> and then he sees Steven Root scooting out the back door like a fucking Spider-Man or something. <laughs> and so he starts, uh, he like gets a bag full of money and goes out the front door and immediately starts getting shot at. Mm-hmm. And so he drops the bag, takes shelter behind, you know, a well, like a stone well outside the bank. And then Stephen Root comes around the bank. This is amazing. Wearing <laughs> this suit of armor made of pots and pans. <laughs> Cackling like a prospector. Right, like like James Franco will like lean around the corner and take a shot, which will ding off one of these iron skillets that he's wearing. And he yells, pan shot! Pan yeah, shot! Pan shot! <laughs> pan shot. 
and ends up knocking James Franco the fuck out. Just runs up on him and knocks him out. It's so funny. It's so brilliant. Uh, and when James Franco wakes up, he's on the back of a horse with a noose around his neck and a semicircle of, you know, presumably a local mob, um, like around him on horseback. And he, they're like, well, I'm the judge. These here are the witnesses. We found you guilty, and your sentence is death. <laughs> when he was passed out, he's like, "Do you yeah. have anything to say about, about about your sentence?" He's like, "What sentence?" He's like, "Well, you were you you weren't in any right condition, uh, but yeah, we've uh, we've read the charges out, and you know, condemned you to death. Anything that you need to say about?" Um, and he he says about the old man, like he's fighting against him, didn't seem fair, which yeah. I think is fucking amazing um, and then it goes one step further the guys ask um, about his horse you know can they get his horse and he, he refuses he's not given you know the horse to, to, to the men and this is when things do a wonderful kind of false start to where you think the story's going and I kind of love this because um, just when it looks like he might be ready to to meet his maker Bo, I believe that's what the the that what you cowboys say out there? Uh-huh. Um, Comanche Indians attack them uh, and kill everyone, but not him. <laughs> right, like the 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 lead scout or whoever of of, uh, uh, of the attacking war party just fires his gun near James Franco's horse to fuck with him, yeah. and yeah. that's it. <laughs> and then they ride off and just leave him there. And so. We're like, well, did he cheat death only to die in this less, like, not less interesting, but like just the, the almost uh, ignominious way, um, mm-hmm. as his horse is slowly riding out from under him as it's eating, just yes. like moving along to eat some grass and that kind of thing, and then he sees off in the distance. A guy riding, driving a bunch of uh, cattle ahead of him. Mm-hmm. And he he calls out and the guy uh, miraculously hears him and rides over and does kind of a piss poor job of it, but but ends up shooting the noose off of uh, James Franco's neck or, you know, severing the noose with a bullet. And James Franco is now free of the noose. And uh, the guy uh, and takes him along on this drive, and he's even <laughs> pitching the idea that, like, hey, we could do. You know what? You you're pretty good at this. Maybe we could do this together if you've uh, he, got a mind for it. And yeah, he tells him that he he starts reading them the rules about being a good sidekick. He's like, you know, the the trick to sidekicking um, is, you know, <laughs> like he starts like putting this on. So you're under the belief that he is this kind of cowboy guy that's driving his cattle from one place to another. But we actually find out that he's a criminal. (laughs) Right. Because a posse rides up on uh, James Franco, who is just like, the fuck is going on? And ends up freezing up. So (laughs) James Franco is then arrested for rustling these cattle, which is Uh what the dude had done. You know, stealing somebody's cattle ain't cool in the Old West. So, ironically, he's arrested for a crime he doesn't commit this thing. Right. Get, cheats death for the crime he does commit, only yep. to get caught for 
the crime he doesn't commit and now he's back with a noose around his neck only it's in town and there are like four other people up on the uh you know the scaffold with him and he's looking down at an audience of people who are like yeah we get to go see a hanging today that's just a good old-fashioned american <laughs> tradition and <laughs> as natural as apple pie bro. oh sure uh but i mean let's not throw too many stones here europe is chuck-a-block full of doing fucked up things in public to its <laughs> citizens so yeah yeah less bad. less with a hanging and more with a guillotine guillotine and... stonings shit like that and um we were a little too young for to get in on the stoning stuff <laughs> but as a nation we did it we did it but we weren't a, we weren't official then yeah you you guys you guys can now get legally stoned um in certain states Oh yeah, God bless them. Um, <laughs> so there's a great joke at the end of this, uh-huh. where one of the, the guy immediately to the you know the bank robbers left, James Franco's left, is just blubbering as he faces his own death, and James Franco has this great line where he looks over and says, hmm, first time." Yeah, yeah. It's, oh, it's so fucking good, Duncan. <laughs> so good um (laughs) it's one of the funniest jokes in the whole thing like as funny as buster scruggs is that one line just tickled me so much um but then uh he scans the audience and and settles his gaze on a, a very attractive young lady in the the mob of people watching this hanging and he says there's a pretty girl and then the hood goes over his head, and the trapdoor level lever uh, drops, and there are cheers and applause. Yes, and that's so, the end. So he dies, ladies and gents. Uh, he dies. <laughs> right, and I I would argue if there if we're going to talk about death and all of these stories, which we are, the yes. original story, the Ballad of Buster Buster Scruggs, is sort of about how. In, in the Old West parlance, the, the classic Old West mythology is that there's always somebody gunning for you. And that, yeah. you know, no matter how good, how fast you are, there's always that younger kid that's that's better and faster who, who wants to make a name for himself. It's a very familiar Old West trope, and I, I feel like that's kind of what's being poked fun at a little bit with uh, Buster Scruggs. Yeah. In near... Uh, Algodona's it's more about the idea that like oh it doesn't matter if you die for like it if death misses you one time it'll get you the next like you can't run from it yeah it's the it's the west it's the west equivalent of our western equivalent of final destination (laughs) right kind of that like hey if if you you can't slip the noose forever yeah, ev- yeah eventually. That's exactly what it is. Right. Um, and so that brings us to our third story, a happy little story. Oh, dear God almighty, this story, by the way. <laughs> fuck, fuck, folks. This is about to get fucking grim. Dark as fuck. This is a bit as dark. Maybe next to the final story, uh, which I fucking love. And yeah. We'll get to it. Um, this is about as dark as Coen Brothers stuff has ever really got. I think this is like I, I was trying to put my head through it, and there's there's bits of the movies which certainly move into the really the really grim, but 
like very quickly in this one. You can tell, I mean, the, the colour scheme of this one is very grey and dark to begin with. And the story just gets yeah, this is this this one to me that when I was like the high watermarks, this is up there as just like a standalone thing, which I think is like absolutely incredible. It's also worth saying, like, because we're going through these and we're mentioning different actors, the cast list for this is fucking ridiculous. Yeah. So yeah, like, and I'll, I'll stacked. Yeah, I'll catch this up a little bit because uh, you know, we hit the the big ones for um uh near Algodones. Uh, yeah. which is, I mean, it, it's kind of James Franco is really the the big name there and Steven Root and uh so forth. For meal ticket, there are really two actors of note in this yeah. one. Yes. The first is Liam Neeson as the impresario. Yeah. Um, and the the uh, second is Harry Melling from uh, the Harry Potter movies as mm-hmm. the artist is how he's credited. Yeah. And yeah. so this little uh, ray of sunshine <laughs> is about Liam Neeson has a traveling show. And that show is... Uh, when he, you see him hanging up the poster and it's like, it's a night of dramatic readings with, uh, like the wingless thrush, I think is, is how it's referred to. Yep. And you're like, oh, okay. So he's like a traveling actor and he gets on stage and he, he reads, uh, from Shakespeare and stuff like that. You know, it's kind of like, uh, the, the show that you see in Tombstone that they all yes. go to of, we're going to do a scene from Othello and then we're going to do. A recitation of this other thing and blah 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 and that's what i was expecting but oh no duncan he is not the star of this show <laughs> oh no no he's not he, he is not the talent the talent is a an armless legless actor who very beautifully recites like the gettysburg address and um uh, Ozymandias, the poem Ozymandias is yeah. notably in there. Uh, the story of Cain and Abel. Do, do, do you know what happened to his arms and legs, Bo? I do not know. I think you'll find that they've been taken. Liam <laughs> 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 Neeson's got a special set of skills. <laughs> Folks, thanks for being with us tonight. Um, we're going to stop it there. <laughs> oh, sir. I both love and hate that so much. I'm so at war with myself about that joke. Oh, I'm so sorry. I've been, I've, been, I've been biting my tongue since we started talking about Liam Neeson. Oh, I feel so much better now. Oh, God. Anyway, oh, yeah. Let's man. let's get let's let's get the laughs out now, boy. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I, oh, I think I think there's opportunity for lots of comedy here. Um. <laughs> so. Um. As the uh the the wingless thrush, the artist, as he's credited, does this recitation. Liam Neeson goes through the crowd that comes to the show. Hat literally in hand and people pay uh for yeah. for the evening's entertainment yeah. 
Yeah, I found the one on the streets. He's, you know, he's, he's just a sad little actor. You know, we did, you know, had to look after him and feed him and clothe him. And, um, and yeah, he collects money, essentially. So yeah. he is, he's working the crowd. That money's helping him get to the next place. It's helping him buy maybe a little bit of booze, but food for him. And this starts off in a way where you think that Liam Neeson uh, has genuine affection for the artist, you know, he feeds him, looks after him, obviously takes him for a piss. You know, go, goes through all this. Thing. He's really caring for his his actor, his act. He's really looking after it, Bo. You know, what I mean, like there's there's a there's a simpatico here. There's a there's a working relationship which is really gonna. You know, there's a love in this relationship, isn't there? Well, yeah. I mean, you would think by the way he feeds him, and uh, there there does seem to be almost a paternal. Uh, one might say relationship between the two, um, mm -hmm. but Duncan, no, uh, things ain't all uh, roses and uh, I don't know petunias, some other flower. Does, does there have to be a but, Bo? Can't we just leave it on this happy note? Well, we're we're moving town to town, up and down the dial, Duncan, mm -hmm. and uh, showing off our our you know paraplegic. Uh, stump. Th this whole thing feels like a me case. Like it, it's like watching imprint or something. Yeah, oh god! <laughs> Just evoking the memory of more happier times. But yeah, like imprint is almost a more optimistic story than this one. Because <laughs> they're going town to town, and as they they go to more and more remote remote places, the money is starting to dry up. Yeah. And, and he he costs money, bro. You have to feed him. You have to clothe him. You have to keep him warm. You have I mean, to like is... hold his dick while he pisses and wipe yeah. his ass and all that stuff. Like all of a sudden, that's you know, it's not worth the money you're getting. Those coins are starting to become less frequent, and now you're maybe not looking at this act as your quote unquote meal ticket, and maybe now you're starting to look at it as a bit of a burden. Well, so one night he decides, uh, the impresario, Liam Neeson, says, uh, I've got a very particular idea of getting late. <laughs> and throws uh, the, the artist in the papoose and hikes into town and goes to uh, a, a lady of ill repute. Yes. And up to like the, you know, the room above the saloon kind of thing. And has this artist dude, like, in the room with him as they're about to get down, uh, Liam Neeson and the, and the prostitute. Yeah, this is after he's got blind out drunk and sang The Sash, yeah, uh, which is a highly sectarian song, <laughs> um, and has, like, like, extreme connotations in the UK, particularly in Scotland and Ireland. <laughs> like, what that's, what that's, connotations? I'm, I'm curious. Um, I don't know this. It's a, it's a sectarian song usually sung by Protestants against Catholics, but it's uh, associated more commonly in Scotland, particularly in Glasgow, with um, with football teams and football fans, those the like of supporters of Glasgow Rangers against those that support um, Glasgow Celtic. Mm. So yeah, it's um, yeah, it's got a. Yes, it's uh, re religiously fraught. Let's put it that way. Uh, remember when when they refer to like things that happened in Ireland as the Troubles? Yes, yes, um, I do yeah. recall that. Yes, <laughs> yeah, songs like this uh, 
you know, are, are the sort of things that endure long since that and are still not, you know, it's still signs that things are not quite right. You know, it's the information like that, Duncan, that almost makes up for that fucking Taken joke. No, that Taken joke was fucking gold, and you were about to recycle it to talk about prostitutes. So don't fucking hit me with it, Bo. Don't <laughs> hit me with it. <laughs> um, but yeah, he, he, he sings that as well. And you think for a second, where he's like, we're gone on a town. And he gets some straps on his back and takes him in there and then takes him to a brothel. Bo, if you're me, you're like that. He's gonna, things are going a bit sour. He's going to get this guy laid. Right. But that's not what happens. It's Liam Neeson who gets laid. And he just turns the guy around in the chair. Like he's in the same room. He's just not facing it. Yeah. And it's fucking humiliating for everyone involved. Of course it is. So (laughs) after that little happy incident, (laughs) they uh, have a performance where there's like no money at all. Yeah. And Liam Neeson is like, oh, this, what the fuck is the point of this then? And an imp- another dude nearby has a show of his own, Duncan. And, uh, I got a feeling that because this show contained animals, you fucking loved this. I, well, of course I did. Because it, <laughs> it's a chicken that can perform theoretically basic math. Listen how happy you are seeing that. You're smiling while you're talking right now. (laughs) Of course I am, Duncan. I used to lose uh, a fair amount of money to a chicken that could play (laughs) tic-tac-toe when I was a kid. (laughs) Fucking con chicken, that was. Con chicken. (laughs) And so it's kind of unclear whether or not this, this chicken actually can do math, but the idea is that you know, somebody will yell out like two plus two and the chicken will pick four. Yeah. And after the show is over, the impresario is so impressed by this. He buys the chicken off this dude for a, a fair amount of the money that he's got. Yeah. You imagine this is, this is like his savings. Right. Right. Dipping into the savings to buy the, the magic math chicken. And, and what, what I love about this is how quickly things shit like the chicken like gets nice accommodation, uh-huh. a giant a giant bag of feet, which is brought to sight while our our limbless friend um, ain't eating the best of food at the moment, uh, if anything, and mm-hmm. he's watching this chicken kind of be looked after. And Bo, it's not as if he has the appendages to help him self here; he's kind of stuck. Right, he is stuck watching as he, as product, is being replaced by something else. Mm-hmm. And we know things are probably not going to go for the best when Liam Neeson... <laughs> this is fucking bro. <laughs> ...decides to take a chill by a bridge <laughs> overlooking a river, picks up a, a big rock, oh, no. goes to the river and drops it to check the depth of the river yes before he heads back to the wagon with a little bit of a smile on his face duncan yeah and then we get the final scene of the movie or of, the, of this story in which liam neeson has started the wagon again And in the back of the wagon, where before we saw the artist and the chicken, we now only see the chicken. Yeah. 
so fucking dark. <laughs> so fucking dark, bro. So Liam Neeson choked uh, the artist. Not sure what that accent was. Not I sure. I, li- I like Sounds it. Sounds dodgy. Choked the artist. I don't know. And Chucked. Uh, chucked the artist. Uh, That's it. <laughs> over the side of the bridge because, you know, it's expensive. Yeah. It's it, like the penny drop pretty quick for not only the artist but the audience about the same time um, and then you're like oh fuck and, and yeah it's just it's just wonderfully dark I mean this is a segment that's devoid with humour yet I found myself kind of smiling at the end um, yeah I loved it I fucking loved this this to me is once again this is it's like a different string in the bow but one that I think is just so wonderfully fucking dark like so wonderfully and Liam Neeson is phenomenal in this the actor that played um, the artist phenomenal I'd like his reading of um, like the Gettysburg Address and Osmandius and stuff like that is brilliant it's I really mean, good really, yeah it's really I, I love that one bit though. Uh, we were kind of breezed over it, and I think it's fucking hilarious. Like Liam Neeson is trying everything to generate some more money, so at one he starts putting in some lo-fi effects, <laughs> which yeah. is the rattling of a sheet of metal, which obviously the artist doesn't like, and there's nothing he can do about it. He's like, "We can bring the." <laughs> it's just fucking, and he does it too long, um, right? And it doesn't really fit. <laughs> yeah, it's. It... It's very darkly funny. It, it's it's such grim humor for sure. Yeah. But it also is like you can take this story a couple of ways. You can you can look at it from the point of view of this is about like art versus commerce. Yeah. Um, and also the the sort of um, commoditization of entertainment to some degree and that sort of mm-hmm. thing, but also of just like, Hey, you know, fucking people are replaceable and also are terrible and will sell yes. out <laughs> another human being. If it means a little more coin in their pocket and are fucking in front of them. <laughs> yeah. I love, man. I love the idea that the chicken is a bust. Like we never know if the chicken works out. Yeah. It's just like, well, he could have just bought a fucking chicken that don't know nothing. And there was a yep. whole trick to to the other. Like, that's the thing that I wanted to know. But the story doesn't care about that. It doesn't matter if the chicken actually is going to turn a profit or not. It's just that the idea that the chicken might turn a profit is enough that Liam Neeson's going to fucking throw this guy off a bridge. <laughs> yeah, murder, murder a helpless man. Yeah. Yes. A helpless man he's cared for and looked after. Yeah, and and who has a truly beautiful talent? Yeah, and yeah, and chickens don't live that long. No, no, <laughs> they, really, they really don't. It's sells uh, about fucking fast. Oh, it's so good, Duncan. Fuck. So it's so so good. And then I'm thinking to myself, right, we have we have reached a high water mark here. And then the Coen Brothers is like, "What's that, Duncan? You want an entire short here?" Tom Waits as a prospector and I'm like, no you didn't Corn Brothers, and I'm like, yeah we did and um, I sent you a message after watching this particular one we're about to talk about which literally just said give Tom Waits an Oscar Please. like, 
Yeah, please someone do it before he sadly passes on to the next. Like, just give him it now. If he's not recognised, I don't know what the rules are with this as well. I don't know if any of this is eligible for Oscar because I think it did play New York and it did play LA. So technically it should be. Um, but because it's Netflix, you never fucking know. Um, but yeah, Tom Waits needs to be up for something here. I think he's fucking brilliant in this. Like, actually brilliant in this. Um, and it's all Gold Canyon, though. Yes. Uh, all, as you said, All Gold Canyon is the title of this uh, segment. Tom Waits plays pro- the prospector. And the only other character we will see is a, a, a character named The Young Man, as played by Sam Dillon. Um, yes. So, what happens here, Duncan, is Tom Waits rolls up into this verdant piece of paradise uh which we see this great moment where we see the you know images of this little valley and the uh river running through it and it's it's just beautiful and yes. then uh the animals run away like butterflies flee a bush <laughs> you know it couldn't be more obvious but it's kind of wonderful in that way uh and uh in comes tom waits who is a prospector who digs uh, a hole by the river, does some uh, some sifting, and finds a little uh, bit of gold, little gold dust, and is uh, it's, it's kind of neat because I didn't really know how prospecting worked. I'm not even sure if it does work like this, but who cares? <laughs> but he like digs up and down the river and kind of hones in on you know. Well, I found the most here, and yeah. then slowly is I really good Tom Waits by the way thanks man uh, I do a, a, a lot more than I should and yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah I, I try to do it after like a shot of hot whiskey sure and usually usually helps me so I can start going what's he building in there what's he building in there it's like one of my favorite things that's ever existed is that track oh yeah there are lights on late at night <laughs> <coughs> Right like that's what happens. So you, you do it, you do it, you do it for a minute, and you struggle to talk afterwards. Yeah, yeah. It, it like I don't know how he does it. Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, he's 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 found this like little nugget. He's found this area, and he he gives it a special little name. And sure. this name made me smile more than a name for a potential collection of gold should. He calls it Mister Pocket. Mister Pocket. And I wanted, I, I just wanted to hug him uh-huh. and tell him how adorable he is. Good night, Mister Pocket. I'll That's see you so in good. the morning. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. And <laughs> so he's he's like working the land, digging holes, like trying to pinpoint where Mister Pocket is. And uh, ends up there's this great moment where he's like getting some food, right? He like catches some fish in the river and. Then climbs a tree where he sees uh, an owl and (laughs) climbs up to the owl's nest and there are four eggs in the nest and he starts gathering them. And then he looks uh, kind of across the way and the owl is looking at him (laughs) like, the fuck, man, what are you doing with all my eggs? And he's like, all right. And, you know, like puts all of them back. He's like, I'm taking one. I mean, how high can a bird count anyway? 
which is kind of a reference to the earlier story that I think is very funny. Yeah. And so, uh, anyway, he finds the likely location of, of Mr. Pocket and starts really digging it up. And then, you know, we get like, uh, this is a little bit more meandering than I'm describing it because there's a lot of just kind of following, but it's all a lot of it's wordless and just watching him work, but it's really cool. And it's really well done. Uh, obviously. Like Waits is captivating on screen. I think yes. that's uh, like he's he, Waits is in general an actor who is an actor of few words, um, and I think that I think that's his strength is like you really like especially in this particular role where he does look like the picture poster prospector. Like if someone asked me to describe what a prospector looked like from the old west. I would describe what Tom Waits looks like because um, he, he looks at and yeah, there is a lots of silence, but it's just the care and attention he's taking to try and find the gold yeah. that is, is wholly captivating on the screen. And the fact that once again, we went from a very grey, dismal segment to a very bright, vibrant kind of very much like the opening um, of this movie. We're back to that sort of colour scheme. It is two seconds away, right? from having what's her face run up the hill singing the hills are alive with the sound of music that is that is what this looks like um it's very very bright colorful so you are lost in this serene valley with tom waits digging and you don't want to be anywhere else yeah i never wanted to leave yeah it's it's so good man and so he does in you know as he's digging this big hole and looking for uh Mr. Pocket, he starts finding, you know, bigger and bigger nuggets, you know, oh, that one's a keeper, you know, and uh, then it's, he, he cracks a rock open and it's like a thin vein of gold, and mm-hmm. then a little closer, and sure enough, there it is, and it's like, you know, nice to meet you, Mr. Pocket, and then, Duncan, no sooner has our hero found the his pocket of gold then a shadow falls over the hole mm-hmm. and we see that uh someone has come along found uh you know tom waits uh in, in his hole uh, uh with his gold and shoots them in the back now, let me tell you right now a little story ball when this happened right because i was back in my happy place when tom waits got shot in the back I audibly shouted out in my house, oh, for fuck's sake. Like, just like, I was like, no, I'm done with Like, can I not have a moment's happiness in my life? So I was like, for fuck's sake, my wife heard me in the other room and she's like, is everything okay? And I was like, that, nah, it's just, just a film. And she's like, what the, do you have to swear at the TV? And I was like, yes, someone has just shot Tom Waits in the back when he's found his dream pocket of gold. Yes, I can fucking swear at the TV. And I was like, maybe this is one step too far with the darkness, Bob. This is what I felt. I don't know how you felt when this happened. I was like, no one fucking shoots Tom Waits in the back. I, could, I, I couldn't think. I was too busy crying. Like the You you know those kinds of sobs yeah. where just your body like... shuts down and you're, <gasps> <laughs> you know. You can't speak. It's just a series of inhales. Uh-huh. Right? So like, uh, like the childhood, like quick inhalation followed by <laughs> one of those. Ah! I'm in a glass case. I'm a mouse. Yeah, it was that kind I of took thing. A, 
He took him and punched him. So, the this piece of shit. Yes, piece of shit. Starts, you know, nudging around the hole a little bit, making sure that you like we see the blood spreading on uh, Tom Wade's back, and. But we keep the cameras like at a deliberate angle on subsequent watches, Bo. The cameras at a very deliberate angle where we are seeing the camera keeps panned down to Tom Waits' lifeless body. Uh-huh. Um, and I start to think to myself, wait a second. Uh-huh. So when the kid, uh, the piece of shit, finally jumps down into the hole to actually steal the gold that he has shot uh, Tom Waits over... Uh, Tom Waits, it turns out, is not dead. I was playing possum. I knew you were going to say that. Because <laughs> it's my spirit animal. Old possum's blues. It's on Nighthawks at the diner. <laughs> playing possum for dinner. Yeah. So... <laughs> It's about the one that album. Warm beer, cold possum. <laughs> Man, I just can't deny. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, lo- oh, I love oh. Tom Waits so much. Oh, he's, he, he has been playing possum. He turns around and puts like a couple in the guy, and he's not kind of not happy that the guy's still kind of like clinging to life. And what Tom Waits does, what what the piece of shit didn't do is finish the fucking job yeah. with a bullet through his skull. And yeah, puts him down, does the good old fashioned double tab. Yep. Then climbs out of this hole and jumps into the river and, and kind of confirms that the bullet, he was shot in the back and then it came out the front yeah. and he hops <laughs> around in the stream saying, didn't hit nothing important. <laughs> <laughs> It's fucking amazing. And then bags up his fucking gold, leaves the the kid's body in in the grave, essentially, what it has now become. Pre-made, pre-made grave, yeah. Right. And then gets the fuck out of the valley, at which point nature returns. Like, you see the deer that ran away just walk through and kind of glance down on the grave and be like, all right, fuck it. And yep. <laughs> so the the one thing I would say about this is uh, a couple of things. I, I think the comment on death here is that uh, if, if, if you have, <laughs> you can, you can cheat death a bit if you have your heart's desire, you know, yeah. um, that he, he, he fought death to get the thing that he had, he had wanted most and, and pursued in an ethical way, one might say. Um, and, uh, and, and that, you know, if you try to horn in on someone else's hard work, you're going to get fucked for your trouble. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that this story seems to be saying is that humanity, no matter what, is just going to come in and fuck up nature real good. Yeah. Like, like, like Tom Waits leaves that valley, but yeah, the animals are coming back. But he has dug holes fucking everywhere. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I still don't want him to die. Don't get me wrong. No, I'll, no, no, I'll take no, the no. holes over no Tom Waits. But national treasure, bro. National, national treasure. treasure. Speaking of national treasures, we got one coming up. Uh, I know. <laughs> so 
but I, I love all Gold Canyon. I think it, not only do I love Tom Waits, I do legitimately think he's great in this. He's uh, brilliant. And it's a genius bit of casting. This is like this is classic Coen Brothers cast. I don't know how they do it, but they cast really well in pretty much everything they do. And the I mean Tom Waits to me, like I said before, is the actor I would pick to play a prospector. Sometimes they do unusual picks which work really well for them. He's the perfect one for here, but testament to them to to get him in the role. I mean, because he's per- he's made for this role. Yeah, it's it's tremendous. So it it's nice because here we are right after Meal Ticket, which was incredibly dark. All Gold Canyon has its moments of darkness for sure. I mean, people are still dying in it, but it ends in a way that's a little bittersweet. Like there's this comment about man's effect on nature, but also the guy that we were rooting for, the guy that was good enough to put the eggs back, yeah. didn't just get murdered for his trouble. And and it it felt reassuring. Yes, and, and so to continue that theme of people getting exactly what they deserve, <laughs> and that nothing random or chaotic ever happens, nothing is the next segment entitled "The Gal Who Got Rattled." Uh, this is uh, stars Zoe Kazan as Alice Longabo, uh, who is uh, the the actress from um, The Big Sick. Which, if you haven't seen mm-hmm. that, that's a great film. As as indeed I've seen it. Yep. And uh, she's quite good in this. Bill Heck plays Billy Knapp, the uh, one of the trail bosses. Uh, Granger Hines plays Mister Arthur, the older trail boss. He's uh, brilliant in this. <laughs> he, he's fantastic. Jefferson Mays as Gilbert, the uh, the brother, and yep. uh, and you know uh, some others in there, but those are the, are our big characters, and. So the this is the longest and uh the the most kind of movie like I would yes. say of the stories and and yep. as the penultimate story it's sort of like okay this feels like a little bit more of a like let's settle in let's relax this is going to be a little bit more of a narrative and it involves Alice whose brother Gilbert has gotten her on this wagon train going to Oregon um, where she is promised maybe to this new business partner, uh, her, like given uh, a, as a hand in marriage. And she's just going along with this, doing what she's told. And Gilbert, unfortunately, dies of cholera. Short, shortly, <laughs> as you do. As you do in the Old West on a wagon train, uh, shortly yep. after they, they leave. And... They, uh, the, the wagon train leaders, Billy Knapp and Ar- Mr. Arthur help bury him. And then she realizes after they buried her brother that, uh, he probably had the money promised to get them to Oregon with him. Like the couple yeah. of hundred, like $400 or whatever that, um, the wagon, the, the fee of the wagon train that, you know, was to be paid uh, partially along the way and partially upon arrival. And um, well, they're like, well, look, we can't find his grave now because they didn't yeah. mark it because they didn't want, you know, the local uh, Indians to loot the grave. You know, he's like, look, they're not going to attack us, but they might scavenge and we don't want. It. And um, so we can't find it. So we'll figure something out. Just, you know, 
keep a stiff upper lip, Miss Longball. You know, we're here to help yeah. you. You know that, and it's very th- that kind of old west formal uh, sort of uh, conversation in a lot of these scenes, which I really like. I like I like that that cadence and and that kind of you know frontier vocabulary and shit. Yeah, and um, so she doesn't know what she's going to do in Oregon, but she rather keep going than return. So um, Alice uh, decides she's going to confide in Billy Knapp. And she's like, look, I can't pay this guy. So I don't know what I'm going to do. And um, also along the way, it's important we point out uh, President Pierce, the dog. Oh, President Pierce. 14th Uh, President of America. Yes. I only know this because I've been listening to a podcast called Presidential, which I highly recommend people check out, uh, where it actually goes through... Um, all of America's presidents, and instead of giving you the narrative you expect, it picks interesting facts about them and tells you about them. So, yeah. Hmm. All right. right. Franklin Pierce. Well, uh, you might know then, Duncan, that Franklin Pierce had, what, three kids that died? Something like that? Yeah, it wasn't very lucky. Right. And that's, I think, part of the joke here is the dog's named after uh, a a president whose life was steeped in death. Yes, Yes. And uh, so President Pierce barks a lot and everyone else on the wagon train is rightfully like, well, somebody shoot this fucking dog. And as soon as the brother dies, then uh, it falls to Alice to, you know, take care of this dog. And Billy Knapp, you know, our our good looking rugged uh, trail boss comes over and is like, you know, people are complaining about the dog again. Uh, I'd be happy to take care of this problem for you if you like. And she's just like, uh, take care of it. And he's like, well, you know, we could chase it off, but it'll only come back. And you don't want to leave it out here to be toyed with by the coyotes anyway. So he's basically like, I'm going to go shoot your dog. Is that cool? And, and again, Alice goes along with it. Yeah. Although she doesn't really want to go along with that. No, but she doesn't, she's never passionate enough in this story to really change her trajectory she's a very path of least resistance kind of gal yeah um so did we did we give the name of this the gal who got rattled which is yeah the, the punchline of this kind of happens at the end um so uh billy knapp takes the dog off to shoot it but he misses and he's like the dog just ran the fuck off and she's like, well, I guess that's best, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> and, oh, no, that's such a shame. Uh, right. Yeah, right. So Billy Knapp is like constantly is having these sort of end of the day conversations with um, Alice where he starts to, you know, make sure she's okay. And then he's saying, you know, um, I could, I suppose, if you wanted, I don't know what your situation is, but if you wanted to say, marry me, uh, at, when we get to Fort Laramie, then that might be good, huh? And his argument is like, well, I'll help you pay for your obligation for, you know, your financial obligation for being on the wagon train. But also he has reached an age where He's either going to continue and become an old man alone on the range like Mr. Arthur, or 
he is going to settle down with someone, maybe have a farm, have have some kids and that kind of thing. And when uh, he he thinks of Alice, he's thinking, well, maybe that would be the practical thing to do. Like, you seem like a perfectly nice lady and, you know, this could be uh, good for both of us. And she uh, once more is like, well, let me think about it, but probably. <laughs> and so the next morning, sure enough, she's like, I, I think I accept. And they have this nice moment where she's like, you know, I'm a Methodist or he's a Methodist and she's an Episcopalian, something like that. And it seems like they're a reasonably nice little couple. You know, it's not mm-hmm. a passionate affair, but it's kind of sweet. And then Billy uh, tells Mr. Arthur that like, hey, this is going to be the last time I'm on the trail. I'm going to settle down with Alice. And the next day, Duncan. <laughs> yes, bull. All of this happy uh, frontier wagon train story takes a bit of a turn when Mr. Arthur is looking for Alice, just kind of checking in on her, and notices that she's not around. And no, she's not there. But, but, but he follows the sound of laughing, the sound of laughter, boy. And I'm like, maybe, maybe we're going to get, a, maybe we've turned to darkness now, and maybe everything's light from here on. Yeah, right. The The last two stories, uh, the, the first four were about death. The last two are going to be about life and happiness. And uh, she has found President Pierce to reinforce this newfound belief we have yes. that this is all going to be light and airy. Um, and he's barking at uh, prairie dogs. And she is also delighted by these uh, kooky little animals, Duncan. As am I, quite frankly. I like a good prairie dog. And... <laughs> <laughs> they dig around in the ground with the gold. Tom uh, Waze is here. How did he get this? <laughs> just like transparent shorts. Well, I'm eponymous, Duncan. <laughs> Means I'm everywhere. I have a hippopotamus? It's like that REM album. You know, eponymous. Oh, yeah. Superman was on that. It's a pretty good track. Um, <laughs> Tom Waits, REM enthusiast. Um, <laughs> secret, secret one. Right. REM enthusiast. Green is revolutionary. Um, so Mr. Arthur uh, then sees that there's a, a, an Indian standing at the top of the ridge. Yes. And he goes over to uh, make, if if you know the the movie Outlaw Josie Wales, goes to make the, the universal sign of friendship, the, you know, arm kind of raised, uh, extended out. And the Indian does not return this gesture. And Mr. Arthur is like, well, shit, that is, uh, <laughs> that's not a good sign. They're going to come for us. Oh, like, shit. Well, squirrel nuts. Get behind that ridge, lady. And so he he gives her a gun and he's like, "Look, I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot these Indians when they come attack us, and if one of them kills me, you're gonna want to kill yourself because yeah. what they'll do to you is gonna be way worse than surviving." So um, she's like, "All right, sir," and he then faces off against the attacking war party. And it's uh, this cool scene where, like, they come in one wave and he shoots some of them. And then they kind of regroup. And then he kills the leader. Um, 
and and they kind of run off and he thinks that hey everything's kosher and he's like well you know boy that was that was quite a scrape uh miss longaball uh really yeah. glad that that didn't go bad on us and then this remaining warrior shows up and tries like hits him with like his tomahawk or something knocks him down yeah. and uh but it doesn't kill him and he ends up standing up and, and shooting this Indian dead before he can reach Mrs. Longabaw, who has hidden herself in this little, you know, kind of foxhole little uh, uh, gully in the ground. And uh, Mr. Arthur gets up after having saved the day, only to find that Alice, who thought he had been killed, has shot herself in the head. Yeah. I mean, this is the first time in recorded history that a woman has taken taken a man's advice seriously, boy, and not seen it as patronizing. God damn it, Duncan! <laughs> um, I mean, I'm not wrong, but <laughs> oh, they you... don't like it when you get they don't like it when you give them directions, boy. Don't give them directions. Sure, yeah. But but once again, it's this character just going like, well, somebody told me to. I'm not making any serious decisions for myself. Yeah. And yeah, sure enough, uh, she has killed herself dead. And like the the episode or, or the segment ends with Mr. Arthur riding back toward the wagon train with Billy Knapp riding towards him unaware yeah. of what's going on. Like he's about to go back and be like, Hey, that girl you were going to settle down with, uh, got a fucking bullet in her head right over the ridge there. So, uh, sorry, I guess this means you're still going to be working next season. Yeah. Bullet from his gun as well. So yeah, there's, there's connotations there as well, because he's already told Mr. Arthur, he's going to leave the wagon trail and leave him alone. <laughs> you know what I mean? So could it be, you know, there's the, the little insinuation that maybe. Maybe? Maybe. Uh, maybe. <laughs> uh. <laughs> but that's how that one finishes. And I'm like, yay, more death, more death. Well, right. let's finish on a high. The mortal remains, Duncan. Yeah, which I'm just going to call the Coen Brothers Dr. Terror's Train. No, Dr. Yeah, Dr. Terror's Train of Horror. Right, Wagon of Terror. Um, yeah, this is this is fucking brilliant. It's yeah, it is the, almost a gothic horror. Like this is the wagon from Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, yes, yes, yeah. And so, as the sun sets, Duncan, uh, our characters—an Englishman, an Irishman, a Frenchman, a lady, a trapper—ride to Fort Morgan on a on a stagecoach. Those yeah, are played is... by the Englishman <laughs> is John Joe O'Neill. Yes. The Irishman is National Treasure Brendan Gleeson. Yeah, the Irishman is, yeah, is Irish National American Treasure. National Treasure <laughs> Brendan Gleeson. A uh, true American treasure. Uh, the Frenchman is played by Saul Rubinek. Yes. Uh, the Lady is played by uh, Cagney and Lacey's own Tyne Daly. Yeah, she's, she's starting to pop up in quite a lot of things in her Twilight years, and I, for one, am very happy about it. She's a great actress. She's so good in this. Um, yeah. And the Trapper is Chelsea Ross, who is an actor you may not know by name, but he's a character actor you would certainly know by sight. 
Uh, he is fucking. Br- I laughed so much at this dude. It is unbelievable. Yeah, he's been in everything, and like I said, look him up on uh, IMDb. You'll know exactly who he is. Um, so it is these characters uh, on their way to Fort Morgan, and it's sort of just a conversation piece. This whole uh, this whole story is just them sitting around in this wagon chit chatting, but. Yes. The, the conversation is about two kinds of people, Duncan. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the way people are. It's a, an existential conversation, to say the least. And um, the Englishmen and the Irishmen uh, say that they, they travel this route a lot. They're ferrying cargo. which Ferrying. Yes. <laughs> which is the corpse uh, on the roof. But he's kind of cagey about what the nature of their business is exactly. Then the trapper tells a story. Oh, boy, does he ever bow, and it makes me so fucking happy. Where? <laughs> it's, it's about his relationship with uh, a Sioux woman. Yes. And he says neither of them knew the other's language. Yeah, no, like, you should probably set this up, and, like, the trapper, like, the, the trapper is his delivery is completely monotone right that this crazy story of hey i i shacked up for a while with this sioux woman we didn't speak the same language but you know i got the gist of what she was saying and yeah. and his conclusion is that people are like ferrets or beaver all yeah. pretty much alike uh, because he understood her because he was like, we're all pretty much the same. Doesn't matter if we speak the same language or not. We all have the same emotions and, and you know, it, it's an amazing story, but the philosophy at the heart of it is that, that human beings yes. are basically just animals. We all want essentially the same thing. And, uh, the lady as played by time daily is a Christian and her husband, who she is going to meet at Fort Morgan, she says, is um, a clergyman who gives a lot of lectures about you know relig- religious philosophy, and says there there are two kinds of people. It's not just one kind of animal person, Duncan. Yeah, there are two kinds of people. They're the upright, the 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 uh, the moral, the ethical, the godly, and there are those who sin. Yes, and she talks about the fact that she she's been separated for three years from her husband. And he is an expert on spiritual betterment, Duncan. Yes, I'm aware of it. And then we get a different perspective on human nature. This from uh, from the Frenchman, as played by yep. Saul Rubinek, who I think is amazing in this, as he delivers this story, where he's like, "No, yeah. no, no, you're both wrong." This is this is this is like the perfect ensemble cast, by the way, because everyone here is on their A game. Everyone delivers a phenomenal performance in this. Yeah, and he's like he, he tells this story about playing a hand of poker uh, when his friend, like a friend, was like, "I want to to uh, play my hand for me," and uh, he says, "I can't make a bet for you. I do not know. I, you ask me to know all your relationship to poker for." All these years, every hand of poker you have ever played. And uh, he's like, I can't do it. And he says, people are too complicated. 
Yes. Uh, to be summed up in a this or that sort of thing. That it's this entire, uh, a panoply, Duncan, of all these little subjective experiences and that no human being can ever truly know another. Yes. And he starts to suggest, he says, like, you know, the way that the lady loves her husband, how can she be sure that it's the same way that he loves her? That, you know, this profound love that she's expressing, maybe he doesn't love her the same way. Maybe he can't. Perhaps he can't because he doesn't have the same experience she does. So she does. He doesn't perceive love itself the same way. And then uh, suggests that maybe even he was not completely faithful to her. Yeah, I love that. Like, Easy now. This is a lady you're talking to here. Right. <laughs> it was not like, yeah. It was like, it's one step too, one step too far. Um, the conversation, but yeah, like so, he's he's hypothesizing the next level. So we have three completely different opinions, uh, by three completely different people on not only how people interact and how people are, but on some level how relationships work. You know how mm-hmm. how humans interact with each other, how we love each other or or don't, and how complicated we are from the very very simplistic base animal nature to the you know infinitesimal you know levels that things could be tried to measure you know you try and measure relationships how people work out never really knowing what the other person feels or thinks even if you spend you know an eternity with them you never really know the person you're with uh, to the yeah the, there are people that are good people and just people that do bad things yeah and she gets fucking beside herself about this well no wonder like boy if i say to you by the way you're <laughs> that the, your, your wife that you were married to for, for for many many years probably was thinking of someone else when they were sleeping with you <laughs> yeah and so she starts flipping out and uh the frenchman trying to you know help in this situation leans out the window and tells the the driver of the of the wagon to stop and yep. Uh, but he doesn't, and the the Englishman and the Irishman assure him he doesn't stop. He never stops. Yeah. So until he gets to his destination, where you know there there's no this is a one way trip. Yeah, uh, kind of sounds. Did you see one way trip? Boy, that sounds kind of suspicious. Right. Well, <laughs> to to calm everyone down, to calm these bitches down, Duncan. <laughs> bitches leave. Na- National treasure, <laughs> Brenda Gleason. Yeah. Oh, by the way, just when you thought you couldn't get any more lovable, yes, sings the uh, the traditional ballad, "The Unfortunate Lad." Yes, which uh, you might be surprised, Duncan, is about death. I I did not know this, but I thought it was an uplifting, jolly tale about life. Yeah it it includes the lines. And over my body throw handfuls of laurel and let them all know that I'm going to my rest. So, mm, mm, this whole thing feels a little suspicious. And then, (laughs) the Englishman says, uh, well, we're reapers. And, and, (laughs) and, And then someone says, bounty hunters? And they're like, yeah, I guess. Yeah, they look at each other like, yeah, yeah, of course, what he said. And that sounds better. Sure, whatever. Um, and what I've heard it both ways. And then the Englishman <laughs> says, well, he distracts, uh, what the, the way that they get people is he distracts them with stories. 
And then Clarence, uh, National Treasure Brendan Gleason, thumps them. Yes. And he says, uh, you know, I, I always like watching when they make their passage. You know, uh, that the expression in their eyes. And uh, he says, I try to make sense of it. Yeah. Meanwhile, our three are looking at each other, trying to make sense of what's going on. And as the audience, we're kind of looking at the screen, trying to make sense of what's going on and reading between the lines, Bo. Yeah. And and that's kind of all you can do with uh, Mortal Remains. Because they they arrive at their destination after the the sun has gone down, and the uh, the reapers step out of the wagon and collect the body off uh, off the roof of the the wagon, uh, open the doors to presumably the the inn at Fort Morgan. Yeah, and the remaining passengers just stay in the wagon, look at each other for a moment. And then eventually they exit. Neither, none of them are, they're all like, ladies first. No, 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 I'm going to need some help down. And, you know, finally they, they step out of the, uh, uh, the wagon, enter the, uh, the, the hotel where a bright light shines down onto a staircase <laughs> as the Englishman and the Irishman ascend. And the Frenchman, pauses to watch uh, the stagecoach drive off into the night as the driver whips the horses to uh to make another trip to uh ferry more passengers to Fort Morgan Duncan and then he puts on his hat and uh steps inside the hotel and shuts the doors thereby ending both the story and the film uh the the ballad of Buster Scruggs and so this last meditation on death, Duncan, I, I think is pretty easily seen as yeah. um, death, uh, you know, the, these reapers collecting the souls of these people and, and ferrying them to uh, the great hotel in the sky. Yeah, Dr. Terrors is a horror. <laughs> Wagon of, of horrors, yes. It is so gothic horror. It is... I never, I never thought that the Coen Brothers would do a gothic horror western short film. This I, is the closest they've got to doing a full-out horror. Yeah, yeah, it is very like it's never overtly supernatural, but yep. it is never not supernatural either. Yeah, and it's so good, Duncan. It is yeah. amazing. Like, so let let's. Uh, I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts on Mortal Remains before we, we talk about this thing as a whole? Hey, let's just talk about it as a whole. Okay, so the questions, I think, do make this movie a success. Do these stories fit together? Uh, are they all equally entertaining, or if not equally entertaining, do, do we feel like there are weak links in the bunch? Uh, and and finally, I think the question is, which which is your favorite of these? And, and would you ultimately recommend... Uh, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs to the fine people listening if they have not already seen it. That sounds fair. That sounds fair. Do you wish me to lead off on this? Yes, please do. Right, so in terms of, like, do they all fit? Are they all... I think they're... I think they are... 
I think there's not a bad one in here. In fact, I think even the the one that I would class as being the the least bit the least good, if we could say that, is still excellent. So even the, even the weakest link in this chain, I still think is really 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 good, and I I think we might land down on the same one here on this one. The one that I think is maybe my least favourite is the girl that got rattled. Um, and I don't know if we will actually now because you've been silent. Um, no, uh, I'm, I'm, mm. it's, between, it's between that one, I would say, and the Hangman one. Those two for me are... Uh, but I know their places. I know why they're there. Yeah. Like we've talked about this before. When we talk about Creepshow uh, in the past, you know, Creepshow is widely regarded as one of the greatest anthologies of all time, you know, genre be damned, but, uh, you know, the older I get, the more issues I see with it, and it's specifically about, not only is there, like, a dud in there, like, a pure dud in there, but the pacing, like, the the pacing of it, as well as, I think, like, with a little bit of shifting around of some of those segments, it would flow better, and so I know the purpose of the second and fourth stories in here, second and fifth stories, sorry, um, and here I understand why they're there, um, but you know they're up against hard competition. And I, like I say, I don't dislike any of them, but I think the girl that got rattled is maybe a like a smidge long, even though it's not that long compared to the other ones. I right. think it it kind of feels like the longest one, um, and. It's the one that I feel has the least Corn Brothers voice to it, if you know what I mean, compared it, to the other ones, which it, are like overtly Corn Brothers. So it feels like the most mainstream kind of Western story, whereas yes. all the others feel stylized to some degree. This is the one that feels like the most, like, oh no, 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 like you could extend this into a probably not movie length with that ending, <laughs> just because it yeah. would be so anticlimactic in a way, but. It, yeah, I think I agree with you. It's I like it. Don't get yes. me wrong. It's it, right. It's just like eh, it's the least impactful of the stories for me as well. Uh, I think, but yeah, I I still I don't know that I would remove it or no. change the order of it. I think it's just it's it's sort of like that's the the slice of delicious pie I will have last. But yeah. it is still going to go down just fine. Yeah, I think it's, and I think it's actually, even though, like I say, it's the one that we're saying it's the most mainstream, maybe less of the Coen Brothers' voice. I think it's positioned correctly in the anthology as well. It segues from that, you know, it segues from Tom Waits like you know, riding off to, to the sunset with his fortune, um, to a story which is ultimately about, you know. Uh, humanity, the things we think about, and uh, as we're being ferried towards the afterlife. So, I mean, I think it's it's there for a good reason. It's like you say, it's that it's um it's the 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 least tasteful bit of a delicious pie, but it's still delicious. So, um, and that's where that lies for me. Uh, I I will say that I so that was your first question was you know that, like about um quality overall. And uh, so I think this is like. I, I would I would go as far as to say damn near perfect um, anthology. I mean, this gives you everything you want. The stories are varied in a way which feels good. Um, not only are they, you know, varied, but they have this very 
a resolute idea of of what they're trying to do even like and i love the fact that it's never i mean yes you can read some of those things in, but someone could easily come out on the internet and say well actually i think this story means this and with the right evidence i would probably believe them um i like that about it they're not like some of them are a bit more face value than others but i, I like that you can read into them and uh, i think the casting is fucking brilliant i think it looks like a lot of money's been spent on it. It looks like a million dollars. Um you know, every scene just looks perfect. Um the dialogue Corn Brothers esque, but they really tap in. There's a really good sense of humor here with that kind of ye old timey Western vocabulary, which I really like as well. I think that's done I, I, like, see if the Coen Brothers told me tomorrow that all that we're gonna do is direct Western movies, I'd be totally fucking fine with that. Like, <laughs> you know. I'd yeah. be over the moon. I think they, I think they nail that. I think they've got that on, you know, d- down completely. Um, so, so, so I, you know, I love that aspect about it as well. In terms of my favourite short, this is when it gets tricky um, because I, I genuinely think on any given day it's one of three, um, and it's it's weird because I, I, I mean. I think if I'm in the the mood for just an uplifting kind of fun kind of experience, then it's you know it's that first one. It has to be the first one. You know, like it's just so fun and over the top and quirky and weird and and goofy and awesome and bloody and violent and it's it's it's, it's everything that I want um, to uplift me and make me feel better about myself. If I'm in the mood just to be enthralled and entertained by one man just owning everything on the screen, then it, you know it has to be Tom Waits. You know I have to watch Tom Waits do his thing. It's brilliant. It's that to me is just pitch perfect. Um, but the the nasty little horror fan in me um, finds difficulty in in divvying up between Liam Neeson's meal ticket and the final story. <laughs> I think but both of them are wonderfully dark in a way that my black horror fan heart gravitates to for completely different reasons. We have one where a guy is basically, you know, is not only is perceived at the start as being like caring, kind and considerate, and by the end of it, we know he's really only out for him fucking self. You know, like as much as humanly possible, at you know, at any cost will be out for himself. Um, and a story about three people having a conversation while being blissfully unaware that they're being ferried to the afterlife, uh, and what 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 happens behind those doors as they close, we don't know. Um, and I love that idea as well. And I can't think of the last time I watched an anthology where of the, what, six stories in it, I think four are perfect stories and two are damn near perfect stories. I can't think of that. What about yourself? Is there, are, are you struggling with picking a favourite as much as I am or is there a clear runaway winner for you? Yeah, I, no, no, there's not the runaway, unfortunately. Um, I... Mm. You know, it's one of those things where I, when I went back and watched Buster Scruggs, like the original story, um, I that one's really, really good. There's there's a yeah. lot of goofiness that appeals uh, to me in that, but also, you know, Meal Ticket is just it's so beautiful and grim 
that I, I'm the same way where it's like it's this dark little jewel of a story. Um, and But you catch me on the right day, I might even tell you that uh, the Tom Waits segment is, is up there as well. Um, yeah. Plus, I don't think the Tom Waits segment is like incredible. I think his performance is incredible, and I think that's what sells. I think you put any other actor in that one, that segment isn't nearly as interesting. Whereas I think you could replace Liam Neeson and his one with another kind of chiseled, grizzled actor, and that segment still works. You know what I mean? I don't think uh, the Prospector segment works without Tom Waits. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I mean about casting is on point for this. I mean, they've, they picked the perfect people all the way through all the stories. Um, yeah, that that last segment is it's difficult not to love that. You know, it's difficult not to think it's like one of the best shorts of the year, if not the decade. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just so fucking great. It's just, and it's the thing that I've wanted forever is Coen Brothers, please just give me a horror. And they gave me a horror. I mean, they're mm-hmm. always, they're always, they're always teasing you. They're always teasing you with that that dark, that dark, nasty little heart that they can like somehow like tease you in with with all their movies. And in this particular short, they go ball deep. Um, and I am, I am happy about that. You know, what I mean, I was, I was generally like, I want more of this now. Please make a fucking horror movie. Um, and I don't think they have to. I don't. This is the thing. I think they proved like I, they don't need to prove anything to me. Um, but that talk about an ensemble cast and everyone is just fucking brilliant. The way the Englishman tells the story about them being reapers and the distraction and all the rest, it starts off very jolly. It kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, Christoph Waltz kind of delivery in something like uh, Inglorious Bastards or even in uh, Django. The way he starts to tell a story, but as this, you know, the further we get along in his story, you start to realise that the jovial way in which he starts off belies something very, very sinister at the back. Um, and the longer he talks, the more you feel uneasy about yourself. Um, mm-hmm. And I, th- yeah, I think that's, I think he d- does it fucking brilliant. And Brendan Gleeson sings, and it turns out Brendan Gleeson can do fucking everything, <laughs> right? And, including sing really, really, really well, and it makes me love him and hate him in equal measure. Ah, talented bastard. Yeah, well, you know, that's why he's a national treasure, Duncan. Um, <laughs> it's a little bit more. It's, yeah, it, uh, you know, I, 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 I keep thinking, like, where would I put this in the pantheon of um, Coen Brothers films, you know? And it's probably... In it's in the upper tier for me, you know. This isn't yep. just some hey, we dumped this on Netflix kind of affair. This is a truly fantastic Coen Brothers film. It's a great anthology. It's a great western. It's a great meditation on death and humanity. It it's like everything you it like it. It's alternately silly and dark and horrifying and surprising and all that stuff and and thought provoking yeah like really like really richly thought provoking which i think is damn near impossible to do is to balance all those because they the all they all require such such attention not to it's like building a house of cards that if any one of those aspects is treated even slightly um without the reverence that they actually need in constructing a story then the whole thing falls apart and they do it. They balance the whole thing out perfectly. Mm. 
Oh, that's so good. God damn. It's top tier. It's definitely top it's definitely top tier Coen Brothers. In answer to your question, I would wholeheartedly recommend this. I think if you've not seen it yet and you've listened to us talk about it, we've probably spoiled a lot. Well, I've spoiled a lot. Um, but yeah, this to me is like Netflix have been killing it this year. I mean, genuinely have been delivering great things across the board, regardless what genre you're into, regardless if you're into TV or you know movies or, or documentaries or whatever they have they have really really stepped up their game this year. Twenty eighteen has been their year, right? It really has been. And to cap it all off, right at the end of the year, they they're fucking putting out stuff from the, the original content from the Cone Brothers. <laughs> I know. That's where we are now. That's the world that we live in now. Is that's that's a that's an option for the Cone Brothers. Um, I don't think this would have worked in the cinema. And that's why I kind of like, I would have went to see it. I know you would have went to see sure. it. Uh, but I think that the idea of an anthology nowadays puts off people in uh, going to a cinema because what is it? You know what I mean? It's too it's too much for modern audiences who like one tone throughout their film. They don't like jumping around. They don't have the the kind of attention dexterity that, that you know people like we do. Um, and that's fine. I mean, there's a, a time and place for that. Um that you know netflix is the perfect in my opinion the perfect medium to put this out. i would love to see this in the big screen but i understand you know you know that this is what they want to do what to do an anthology netflix give them money they go away and do it and it looks fucking great and that's the world we live in now we're about to swing it in 2019 right and now we live in a world where mike flanagan is making tv shows for netflix and the Cone brothers are producing film content for netflix how is that not fucking exciting yeah. Yeah. And uh, like you said, it's, it's, it's crazy that in the same year that we got haunting of Hill house from Netflix, which I think is a tremendous achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're ending with Coen brothers and I get it too. You know, as you said, I can see why this never made it into theaters because not only is it an anthology, it's a Western anthology. And yeah. also it's tonally weird. Like, yeah. you know, it's, it's one of those things that's never going to be a mass appeal kind of movie. So why not? And, you know, I, I, I just think it's, it's incredible. And the fact that I was able to go back today and just watch like, Hey, I'm going to watch these three segments again, just to refresh myself and just to kind of enjoy it again. Um, it, it feels almost like cheating Yeah, that, (laughs) that you can just like watch the opening segment of the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the morning like in the morning before you go to work just to set the tone for your day of like, Oh yeah. If I got Netflix, let me just watch this 10 minutes of fucking genius cinema. And okay. Now I'm ready to go about my day and deal with people, I suppose. Yeah, and if you've had a really bad day dealing with people, then maybe when you get home after that busy day, you shove on some meal ticket, kick back and smile. (laughs) Right. Right. That's one that I, You know, I should go back and watch again, but it's just such a bummer of a... It's so dark. It's so fucking dark. Um, Yeah, I I don't know if I'll look at Liam Neeson the same way again now. Which is kind of great, though, right? I mean... I've been tired of looking at him being the the, the taken rip-off role over and over and over again. The fact he he, he doesn't like a really villainous role makes me kind of happy. Oh, it's good stuff. All right. Duncan, I think we're both uh, saying that we will sing the ball- the ballad of Buster Scruggs any old day of the week. Uh, it's a, a yet another 
fantastic film from the Coen brothers. Surprise, surprise, the Coen brothers make good movies. Um, yeah, yeah. As will be interesting is, and it's probably worth saying this here, it is my intention on my show, uh, Podcast Under the Stairs, like, like in the first quarter of next year, we're going to be doing one of those big, massive, why did we plan this? This seemed like a good idea at the time. A retrospect, full retrospective on the cinematic works of the Coen brothers and it's myself and it's yourself and it is a rather fantastic podcaster called Doug Tilly yeah. and I will be super interested to see not only where this lies with all three of us and an overall list ordering them um, but just in general like Coen brothers span so much cinema that it's going to be really interesting to see what particular niche of Coen brothers all three of us end up sitting in because they're just they cover so much ground, and I think there'll be a lot of common ground. But I imagine the discussion will go, you know, like people will start to really champion particular movies. Other ones are like, "Yeah, that's a good film. It's all right." And no, what do you mean? It's it's amazing, you know. And that's what I'm looking forward to doing. But yeah, that these guys can't wait for the next thing. And I, the, the thing about it is, it could be anything. As with the Coen Brothers, you never know. And how is that any more exciting? Than being in a position where you just don't know what the next Coen Brothers project is actually going to be like. If it's going to be dark, if it's going to be a comedy, it's going to be gritty. You don't know. All I know is that they are legitimately uh, maybe the safest pair of hands uh, working in American cinema right now. Um, and give them more money. Give them all the money, Bo. All the money. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I just don't know what uh, what what you could do to make this better other than yeah. potentially tighten up the gal who got rattled. But even then I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think like, well, what would you cut out of that? Nothing. Yeah. It's just like th- this needs to be the more languidly paced piece between, you know, the, the next two, next two last and last segments. And it's, yeah. it's a great story. And so eh, I just, I feel better. I, like I'm already thinking about like, well, I probably like it better than Lewin Davis. I probably like it better than O Brother. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's above yeah. some favorites of mine already. So yeah, yeah, oh, definitely, definitely. I, th- I think it's. I think in terms of what they've put out um, since 2010, this might be the best thing they put out since 2010. Yeah, yeah, maybe so. I, I think a simple man's pretty good. Uh, I do like a simple man, yeah. I, I like I like all of that. There's very few Coen Brothers movies that, if any, that I would say I dislike. But I think, yeah, from 2010 onwards, this might be my favorite thing they've done since yeah. uh, No Country, actually. Yeah, you might be right about that. Uh, well, we'll talk about that on a whole other show, Duncan. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, hey, we're going to be back real soon because like we've got, soon. yeah, like we're doing a catch up episode. So, uh, you know you know where to find us uh, unless Duncan, there's something in particular you want to uh, shill. Uh, no, we're going to, no. we're going to wrap this conversation up because uh, r- right on the heels of this folks, you're going to be getting another episode of Duncan and Bo come correct, uh, which is going to be us catching up on some movies uh, that we've been watching. So it's just going to be a great big movie discussion and review show. So uh, prepare yourself. Uh, Cause that is coming right it, it's like drinking from the fire hose when we open the spigot on that conversation so um folks thanks very much for listening uh we will be back very soon to talk about some more movies duncan say good night to everybody good night to everybody all right bye everyone bye
face the barren waste without the taste of water cool water old Ann and I with throats burned dry and souls that cry for water cool clear water Dan can you see that big green tree where the water's running free and it's waiting there for you and me the nights are cool and I'm a fool each star's a pool of water cool water but with the dawn I'll wake and yawn and moving Dan don't you listen to him Dan he's a devil not a man and he spreads the burning sands with water water Dan can you see that big green tree where the water's running free and he's waiting there for you and